Hello, vampires and slayers. This is Mixtress Ray, and you're listening to What's This Bitch Talking About? To which the answer to that question is Season 3, Episode 4 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, If this is your first time listening to my podcast, probably not, because why would you start with Season 3, Episode 4? Some random episode. (laughs) Um, But if it is the first time, I review, recap, rewatch every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer exactly 20 years after its original air date. So today is October 20th. And 20 years ago today, this episode aired, which is called Beauty and the Beasts. So I really dislike this episode. Let's start with that. Um, Which is unfortunate because it's a Marty Noxon written episode. And I do like Marty Noxon in general. However, she's got... She has a tendency to romanticize the bad boy archetype in her storylines and this episode definitely exemplifies that and it's got a lot of problematic aspects to it which we will get into but um this episode basically theorizes that hashtag all men are beasts which faith says in the like teaser of the episode and um i wrote the first part of my notes i just made a list of beasts in this episode, the beasts are Angel, Oz, hashtag all men, Xander, and Pete. Xander is not actually supposed to be... They don't really, like, focus on him in any way as far as being a beast. And they also don't focus on Giles at all as being a beast. Um... They do kind of give Angel an asshole, boys will be boys situation. Um, yeah, this episode, there's, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a trigger warning for this particular episode. Um, as y'all know, this is not a spoiler three free podcast, so there's your warning on spoilers. Um, I will probably talk about other aspects of the series in any given episode, definitely this one. But I do want to give a trigger warning seriously because obviously if you've seen this episode it really should have had a trigger warning on it trigger warnings weren't really a thing in 1998 it should have at least had and I don't know if it did but this episode deals with domestic abuse and it portrays it in a pretty realistic way and the way that they deal with it is not very great they like went so far as to make it make the domestic abuse situation in this episode really look like domestic abuse and they did a good job portraying it however the other characters reactions to it are overall pretty terrible so i but i do want to give anyway i i do want to give a trigger warning that like if talking about domestic abuse is upsetting to you this might not be if for some reason you haven't actually watched the episode yet um you might want to avoid this one it i mean it does have some important plot aspects to it um but i mean just be forewarned on that you probably could skip the the really blatant domestic abuse scene and kind of take in the rest of the episode um 
but keep it at arm's length. This is not a good episode. Um, anyway, so we should actually start talking about it instead of me just saying that it sucks. But trigger warning, domestic abuse is definitely a part of this episode of Buffy, and it will be something that I talk about too. I think I'm going to start off this episode just quoting um, Nikki Stafford's episode guide called Bite Me. Um, first of all, the her summaries, her summaries of the episodes are always so funny because they're so short. So this is the summary of the episode according to Nikki Stafford. When corpses are found in Sunnydale that have been mauled by wild beasts, both Buffy and Willow worry it may be the work of their boyfriends. Um, and then I'm going to go on to read a little bit more. This episode starts and ends with like a voiceover of Buffy reading from Jack London's Call of the Wild. And Nikki Stafford had something interesting to say about that, which I didn't, I haven't read that book, so I don't really know anything about it except the quotes that are in this episode. So this kind of gives you some insight into that book, which is obviously, we're supposed to take something from that since it begins and ends the episode. Quotes from this book. So this is from Nikki Stafford's Bite Me. This episode used Jack London's Call of the Wild as its reference point, and while there are some similarities, Noxon's conclusion is the opposite of London's. Call of the Wild follows the story of Buck, a dog who is kidnapped from his comfortable estate in California and forced to be a sled dog in the Klondike. He's passed from one vicious owner to the next until he's rescued by John Thornton, to whom Buck becomes devoted. When Thornton dies, Buck turns his back on civilization and becomes a savage beast, leading a pack of wolves and showing no mercy to any being. The book's kill-or-be-killed theme is celebrated by London, and Buck is lauded for dominating everything around him. As he kills animals, dogs, and human beings, the reader is supposed to look up to him. He learns no lessons, but rather uses primal instinct to guide him. Nikki Stafford then goes on to say that, you know, um, she thinks that the episode is telling a different story, is not being complicit in that inherent violence of men, but I don't know if it is. I kind of think this episode, I mean, Faith sets it up in that one of the very first scenes telling Buffy all men are beasts, and I think that is the thesis statement of this episode, and I think that's pretty shitty. Um, I don't, especially if it opens and closes with readings from Call of the Wild, and it's all about somebody, you know, a beast loving someone and being tamed by that love, but then when that person dies, they just revert to being a beast. So I assume that's the comparison we're supposed to make with Angel, who is back now, previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the very last scene of the last episode from last week, was Angel falling out of the sky, back from hell. So we find out in the course of this episode that because Angel has, they don't directly state this, but I mean, it's been five or six months at this point that Angel has been dead. So five or six months of human time translates to hundreds of years in, in a hell dimension. That's some hell math for you. Um, I have to give credit every time I say the word hell math. I did not think of that. It came from the Buffy podcast um, that I always listened to for research called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. I think it's kind of 
interesting that, you know, so the episode starts with a voiceover from Sarah Michelle Gellar reading Call of the Wild. And um, it morphs into Willow reading it. Like she's actually holding the book. So we know what it is. <laughs> um, it's not just quotes from Call of the Wild. We are supposed to know that it's quotes from Call of the Wild because it transitions from the voiceover of Buffy to Willow, like actually holding the book and reading it to Oz. He's in wolf form in the the book drop cage in the library. Don't even get me started on that book drop cage. I find this a very inconsistent uh, setting in general, this book drop cage. So I might as well go on my rant right now. Every time this book drop cage is a part of the plot of Buffy, <laughs> a part of the setting in a Buffy episode, I have to complain because first of all, why would you have a book drop that is in like way inside the library like you'd have to walk like a good 20 to 50 feet into the library to return your books in this book drop cage second of all it is regularly used so if the library's closed and locked you can't return your books so like what's the point in the book drop i mean shouldn't it be on the outside of the library <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it make more sense if it was like a little locked cage and like the book drop part of it was on the outside of the library, but like the cage part was on the inside, right by the door? Second of all, this cage looks extremely flimsy. And whenever they fucking feel like it, they just, somebody breaks open the cage. Like they use it to lock Oz in there every month, apparently on his three nights of being a wolf. But Pete later just like rips the door off the hinges real quick. And I think Angel has done that at some point as well. It's just like, this show seems to regularly like conflate emotion with violence. And I think this episode is a good indicator of that. And it's like the more emotional, especially a dude, the more emotional a dude is, the more capable of violence he is. And that is definitely what this episode is trying to say. And that seems to be a problematic aspect of Marty Noxon's storytelling in general. It could also be Joss to blame here. I love blaming Joss Whedon for things, so sure. Um, but anyway... So I find it interesting that the voiceovers of the Call of the Wild are all from women. So we hear Sarah Michelle Geller quoting it, then Willow, and then at the end of the episode, it's Sarah Michelle Geller again. Um, so Willow's reading it to Oz, and he's like, you know, he's in wolf form inside the book drop, and Xander shows up, and he is... Um, supposed to take over for Willow, I guess. I guess they always have somebody just kind of there with Oz, just like they do shifts or whatever, to just keep a watch on him um, when he's in beast form. And um, so Xander's taken over. We get the impression that he doesn't usually do this, you know, because Willow's kind of taking him through everything. Like he's had his two o'clock feeding. He shouldn't, you know, 
blah, blah, blah. She get, she gives him the tranquilizer gun just in case, you know, like, so maybe it's usually Willow that watches over him. But, you know, wouldn't it make more sense if all of them sort of take turns? I don't know. But we get the impression this is the very first time and Xander's doing it as a special favor to Willow. But the second she walks out the door, Xander lays down on a table in the library, uses the call of the wild as a fucking pillow, and goes to sleep. He doesn't even try to, you know, he's... He's just such an asshole and he never apologizes for it. Xander is a huge asshole in this episode. And it's sort of, again, the biggest problem that I have with Xander as a character is not that he's an asshole, but that no one ever calls him on it. He is able to be an asshole without apologizing for it. And that's not okay. Um, okay, where let's go back to my notes here and see what we're doing. There's a gnat flying around in here. Okay. Oh, and then we get the after we see Xander lay down and just go to sleep immediately when he's on Ozwatch, um, we get a conversation between Buffy Buffy and Faith. They're patrolling. Um and they're just sort of talking about Scott. Um Faith is asking Buffy, you know, like how much she likes him and stuff like that and Buffy's like yeah well we've been on a few dates and blah 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 and Faith calls Scott a muffin <laughs> because Buffy's like well you know he's sweet and he's funny and and Faith says and kind of a muffin and then Buffy says yeah blueberry with that crunchy munchy stuff on top so I think it's um kind of cute that they're comparing Scott to a muffin a blueberry muffin and then we get um, Faith's little dialogue of, because Buffy then says, after she compares him to a muffin, she says, well, but the thing that I like the most about Scott is that he doesn't seem to be any kind of hell beast. And that's when Faith says, all men are beasts, Buffy. <laughs> and then she goes on this tirade of like every single dude from Manimal to Mr. I love the English patient has beast in him. And I think we're supposed to believe that. I think I already said that, but I think we really are. We're supposed to believe that all dudes are, if they're ever not being violent, rapey, terrible assholes, it's because they're suppressing that urge in themselves. And I call major bullshit on that. I realize that our society sets dudes up for that. For, it probably can to a guy, and I'm not a guy, so I don't know. It probably can feel like to a guy sometimes that they have to just suppress their animal urges, but I really don't think that those animal urges are nature. I think they're nurture. I think they're part of our society telling guys like Xander that you can be a total negligent, terrible, violent assholes, asshole and no one will call you on it and no one will expect you to apologize and everyone will just be like, shrug, boys will be boys, all men are beasts, etc., etc. So this episode is really like for what's supposed to be a feminist TV show with a girl superhero at the forefront, 
this episode is so yucky. It's just, Marty, come on. <laughs> I have to think that, um, you know, we get a very similar storyline when Buffy gets into a, a very abusive relationship with Spike in season six. And that's also very driven by Marty Noxon and her storytelling. But I feel like that particular storyline overall was something that we weren't supposed to like, was something that we were supposed to take a hard look at. And in this episode, it's just portrayed in a different way. So maybe Marty Noxon knew she wanted to tell she wanted to tell stories about domestic abuse. Maybe she's been through it herself. She wanted to deal with that issue. And I think that's a commendable thing to want to deal with that issue in a pop culture setting. But she just didn't quite know how to deal with it well yet, I think. Um, whatever. Um, oh yeah, Xander. I skipped over this note, but back right before he fell asleep when he was still talking to Willow and Willow was like outlining, you know, everything that he needed to do to take care of Oz for the night. Um, there were like towels hung up inside the uh, book drop cage because like whenever Oz in the morning reverts back to his human self, he's naked. So the towels were up for privacy purposes and Xander says, oh, it's fine. I can handle the full Monty, the Oz full Monty or whatever. And then he's like, not, not that I want to handle it, you know, like those kinds of look offhanded. I'm not gay jokes were very common back in 1998. So I don't think this would have even registered as really anything back in 1998, but now it just feels kind of gross. Like you didn't need to do that. And I know at this point in the series, they, the writers knew that they were either going to make Willow or Oz gay or Willow or Xander gay. And they didn't know which yet. I think they were probably leaning towards Xander because they put a lot of like little pepper, a lot of little gay jokes here and there with Xander um, throughout the first few seasons of the series. So I think this is probably one of those because they thought that they were going to make him gay later. So um, I'm really glad they didn't because this show is supposed to be about women and we don't have very many gay women storylines. So I'm so glad that it ended up being Willow and not Xander. Although Xander being gay might've made him a more likable character. Like shit's not about Xander. I don't like shit being about Xander. So let's move on. Um, okay, let's go back. Uh, All Men Are Beasts. Um, I, I noted that I really like the color scheme of both both Faith and Fuffy's <laughs> Buffy and Faith's outfits while they're patrolling together. Buffy is wearing like her signature Buffy blue, like a cardigan. And um, Faith is wearing sort of a transparent, darker blue shirt. So it, I don't know, just like the color schemes, it just, it fit for me. Buffy blue versus Faith's darker blue, you know, like the two slayers and that immediately because I've been I go through cycles of different obsessions that I have different things that I nerd out on and my current 
it, I just cycle through like the same five things. And right now, like the last week or two, I've been kind of like obsessing and nerding out about perfumes and lipstick. I'm in a very girly, uh, obsession space right now. So just this shot of Buffy and Faith patrolling together with their different shades of blue, with their different signature shades of blue, made me think, although I don't know if we see Faith in blue very often, but just in this scene in particular, it made me think, oh my god, wouldn't it be great to have a Slayer line of perfumes? And there could be the Buffy version, and there could be the Faith version, and obviously the Buffy version would be like kind of lighter with a dark undertone to it it'd be more of a day fragrance and then the faith one would be you know super dark and edgy and <laughs> and then I started like designing the bottles in my head and the first thing that I thought of um this is perfume side tracks with mixtress <laughs> the first thing that I thought of if you guys have ever seen or look it up Kat Von D has um, these two fragrances, fragrances that she calls Saint and Sinner. And she recently like re-released the fragrances in new bottles. I don't know if she reformulated the scents. The scents fucking suck in my opinion. But that's just my opinion because both of them are kind of based on white florals. And I really don't like white florals. That to me is just like a sort of overpowering old lady smell. <laughs> Um, white florals are not for me in perfumes. But anyway, the bottles, when she reformulated her Saint and Sinner perfumes, are so gorgeous. They're like, they're just, they're small. They're not too showy. They've got like, the Saint perfume has this white, they're both like exactly the same, only one has a white design and one has a black design. I mean, the scents are different too, but, um, I don't, it's hard to explain. It's like a bunch of roses kind of encroaching, roses and vines kind of encroaching around the bottle. Um, and then there's a white one and a black one. And I started thinking, oh my God, if I were going to like just make my own personal, like just for me, Buffy and Faith fragrances, maybe I could like get a hold of some empty Kat Von D Sate Center bottles, like on eBay or something. And like, make sure I like boil the glass really well or something so that you can't get any fucking traces of the perfume perfume that used to be in it. And then just make my own Buffy and Faith fragrances and have them in those bottles because those bottles are so gorgeous. I wish I liked the fragrances because those bottles are gorgeous. Anyway, <laughs> I, I would love to like know how to do stuff like that, make my own fragrances. I think Buffy's would be it would have like top notes of like vanilla and cotton candy and just sort of like the girlishness of Buffy. And then it would, as it dried down, you know, the middle notes and the base notes would be darker, but they would still have, it would still be a vanilla. Like Buffy would probably be like an oriental vanilla or something. And Faith, oh, Faith would be like, and this is just me personally, because my favorite fragrances are fragrances are like gourmands and vanillas. I guess vanilla kind of counts as a gourmand. Like I like things that smell like candy. So for me, 
<laughs> Buffy would be cotton candy and Faith would be like licorice. You know, she'd be like something like sickly, thick, syrupy, sweet, but dark, you know, like kind of be off-putting to smell, but you'd also be addicted to it, you know? <laughs> Anyway, that's just my little aside of Buffy Faith fragrances uh, coming soon to a shelf near me. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I did once, there was like an Etsy perfumer that had a Buffy fragrance and a Drusilla fragrance. And so I bought them, but they were pretty bad. They were, I mean in my opinion, they were bad. They just weren't for me, but, um, I do keep them just because I don't know. I don't know what else to do with them. I guess maybe someday someone will come over to my house and they'll smell it and they'll like it. And then I'll give it to them. Okay. Anyway, that has been perfume sidetracks with Mixtress. I'm kind of excited actually. I guess I'm not done with the perfume talk. Um, the very first like gourmand, fragrance um or I've read that it is I mean I'm not a perfume historian but um the first gourmand fragrance which just basically means that it smells foodie um is Thierry Mugler's Angel and I know it's kind of like a fragrance that like a lot of people really hate it it's like a love it or hate it sort of scent it's very strong and it smells like, um, okay, I'm just going to read you from the Fragrantica.com website, which you can look up pretty much any perfumes. It's got like a shit ton of notes in it. Um, so I'm going to list some of them right now. Bergamot, coconut, mandarin orange, jasmine, cotton candy, pineapple, caraway, nutmeg, honey, blackberry, plum. I'm skipping over a few. Uh, rose, red berries, base notes, tonka bean, vanilla, patchouli, sandalwood, amber, musk, chocolate, and caramel. So as you can like guess from reading that, why people either love it or hate it, like it's very complex. So it can probably be pretty overpowering for some people. But anyway, it's like a scent that was sort of the origin of both of my favorite scents of all time, which are Lolita Limpica and Hypnotic Poison, which are both also gourmand vanilla type scents that are not nearly as complex as Thierry Mugler's Angel. But I'm really excited because out for delivery right now, I have ordered, <laughs> um, I've wanted to own the Angel scent for a while now, since it's sort of the thing that both of my very favorite scents were based on. So I feel like I should I should experience it, you know? I really like to nerd out on perfume, so this is one that's like kind of a big deal. But it does cost a lot. But I found out that their bottles are refillable. So essentially you just buy one bottle and then you like, we even have a place here in town that can refill it. So I went on eBay and I found somebody that was selling their like used bottle it's like, it's still got over half in it, but it's a really small bottle, but it is one of the refillable ones. So it's out for delivery right now. So any second now I will get delivered to my house, Thierry Mugler's Angel Perfume. <laughs> and it's going to be one of those things that people are going to be like, why the fuck you smell so terrible lately, girl? <laughs> but I think I'm going to like it. Anyway, I'm excited because it, 
Um, I got it for really cheap on eBay since it was partially used, but I can refill it whenever I use it up. So that's fine with me. It's got an obnoxious bottle too. It's like star shaped. So I think it can't even stand up on its own. You have to like lay it on its side or something. It's like, why, why are you the way that you are? And why are you called angel? If you're like a whole shit ton of different fragrances that are mostly food based, why would you be called angel? I feel like it needs like a more sinister sounding name. Anyway, anyway, perfume corner with mixtures. Um, so the next morning we get Buffy talking to Willow and sort of recounting the conversation that her and Faith had had the night before. And she, she says to Willow, like, or Willow says, I don't think all men are beasts. And Will and Buffy says, yeah, it is an awful generalization. And that's like the only part of the conversation you get. And, um, then Scott runs up. So you get a cute little moment with Scott. Um, then we go to the library where Giles and Xander are sort of freaking out a little bit. Um, Oz is, I guess, I don't know why this wouldn't, why this would be happening. Cause Oz isn't there. Oz comes into the library. I don't know why this conversation would be happening after Oz already left the library from being locked in at night, but Giles and Xander are essentially talking about the fact that Oz may have gotten out last night because there was a killing the night before that seems to fit with a werewolf killing and the window is open inside the cage. So it's possible that Oz got out. And during the course of the conversation, Giles, you know, gets it out of Xander that he was asleep. And Xander never apologizes. He's just sort of like, yeah, I may have closed my eyes now and then. And Giles does yell at him, but I think he really should have been harsher. I think there should have been, this should have been more of a plot point that we focused on. Like Xander did not, you know, he agreed to watch over Oz and then didn't even try. He needs to be sorry at the very least. I mean, this show and this episode in particular really kind of talks about intentions. You know, it's all about, later we get this speech from Giles about how there's two types of monsters. There's one that can be redeemed and more importantly, underline, underline, wants to be redeemed. So kind of the morality of the episode is outlined by Giles, of course, because he's the most moral character of Buffy, probably. And they're basically saying, you know, as long as you want to be redeemed, it's okay to be a monster. So there's problematic aspects there, but I am a person that overall, I do think intentions are very important, but the, the level of importance that this show and this episode in particular places on intentions is too much because there is, your actions are still very important. Like whether or not you wanted to be an asshole doesn't mean that you weren't, you know? And I think that's something that we can kind of talk about in the context of this episode, in the context of domestic violence as well. Um, so we might as well 
get into that right now. Um, part of the problem with domestic abuse situations, in my experience, and I have had some experience in this, um, that is what keeps bringing you back to a person is your empathy for their intentions because you perceive them as not intending to be terrible to you, to not be intending to treat you like shit. And that's a really problematic aspect of the whole cycle of abuse because somebody yells at you or hits you or, you know, whatever that particular person's pattern of abuse with you is, they go through it and then they usually express genuine, what seems to be genuine remorse. They will apologize. They will um, sometimes, you know, say that they'll never do it again. Sometimes they'll give you gifts. They lapse into what is called a honeymoon period. And this is how the cycle works with abusive relationships. And the honeymoon period is after, you know, after it's hit the explosion or whatever it is. I don't know what all the different, um, you know, let me look that up. As I think they have like different names for each part of the cycle of abuse. Okay, I think I'm going to read this to you. It might be a little bit long. I mean, it's like five paragraphs, but I feel like it's, you know, I feel like we need to be serious about me, take it more seriously than the episode does about a, domestic abuse. Okay, so according to Livestrong.com, um, I don't know if they're a super reputable source, but I feel like we can probably take this as general truth. The four stages of an abusive relationship. Overview. Four stages of an abusive relationship are also referred to as the cycle of abuse, which is a social cycle theory that Lenore Walker developed in the 70s. Hey, Lenore, it's developed by a woman. To explain patterns of behavior in abusive relationships, Walker's theory is based on the idea that once abusive relationships are creative, created, repetitive patterns characterize them. This cycle of abuse concept is widely used in the treatment options of American domestic violence programs. First stage is the tension building stage. Tension builds just before an overtly abusive act occurs. This stage includes passive aggressive behavior on the part of the abuser, poor communication, and palpably escalating strain between the two people. The victim often strongly fears angering her partner. <laughs> and it is. It is gendered right there. It doesn't need to be gendered, but it is nine times out of 10, more, more like 99 times out of 100, a woman that is being abused by a man. Doesn't mean all men are beasts though. Okay, sorry. Victim often strongly fears angering her partner. Therefore, in this stage, victims often try to change their behavior to prevent triggering their partner's tendencies towards violence and abuse. Second stage, Incident of abuse stage. The most overtly abusive stage of an abusive relationship includes the incident itself. The incident of abuse stage, as its name suggests, involves an abuser trying to dominate his partner through acts of domestic violence, such as kicking, hitting, shoving, biting, throwing objects. I would also add here verbal, you know, it's not just physical abuse that, you know, as part of this. 
Incidents of abuse also include sexual abuse, emotional... Okay, there we go. <laughs> they are mentioning that. Emotional abuse, stalking, neglect, economic deprivation, intimidation, and other extremely controlling behaviors. Third stage, the reconciliation stage. This is what I've heard of as being called the honeymoon stage. In the reconciliation stage, the abuser apologizes for harming his victim, is overly affectionate and caring, or chooses to ignore the incidents of abuse or blame them on the victim in some way. These events are often classified as the honeymoon phase. Hey, there we go. In this stage, the abuser will make it seem as though the violence is finished, assuring the victim that such incidents will never occur again or, the, or that the abuser will change. The abuser often feels overwhelming emotions of sadness and remorse, or at least he pretends to. Some abusers even threaten suicide to prevent the victim from leaving. Oh, shit. Yeah, I've experienced that. Most abusers shower victims with love, purchasing them expensive gifts, gifts and treating them with extra kindness. The calm stage is the fourth stage. I don't know if I've heard of this one. Calm stage is thought to be an extension of the recon okay, reconciliation stage. During the calm stage, the abuser tries really hard to be kind to the victim and does his best to restrain himself from harming this person. <laughs> Sorry for my um, sarcastic reading of that, but it, it, I feel it warranted it. The abusive relationship becomes relatively peaceful and calm during this phase, which often convinces the victim that the abuser has indeed changed. Conflicts inevitably arise, however, which lead again into the tension-building stage of the relationship. So if you recognize any of this as, I mean, I, I, I hope no one is going through this right now, but if anybody listening recognizes any of these stages in a relationship that you're in right now. Um, I just looked up domestic abuse resources and one that is really standing out to me is a toll-free um, national dating abuse helpline and it is 1-866-331-9474. Also you can go to loveisrespect.org. Um, to get more, if, if you would rather just, you know, like look up a website instead of call someone. But I do hope that you will ask for help if you think that you may be in a situation like this right now, because if you just watch this episode, you would really be blaming yourself. And I don't, and that is not the right thing. You should not be blaming yourself. You should not feel bad for falling for this kind of shit because... <sighs> In these cases, you know, it's not like you're just a stupid woman and you keep going back to an asshole because you're stupid, even though that's often how society will paint domestic abuse. That is not at all what is happening. You are in a situation where someone is really good at manipulating you and is, you know, those stages of reconciliation and calm. That's something that they did right in this episode, showing that part of the process. You know, we see pete knock debbie to the ground twice and she's bleeding and she has a black eye and he is screaming at her and then you see him just like snap out of it after you know you just see him snap out of it and you see him feel really bad like oh my god what did i do to you i'm so sorry um or does he even really say he's sorry i don't know if he does but you do see him feel bad and ask her if she's okay. 
And then he's really upset and she ends up consoling him. And I think that's, I think the way that they portrayed the situation was very realistic. And, um, but just the way that they treat Debbie afterwards was not um, realistic or it was realistic, I guess, because people do treat victims of abuse as like, like almost wanting it as being stupid. And that's just not the case because abusers are really good at finding people they can manipulate. And maybe there's some sort of weakness in the people that they choose. But I tend to think that these relationships start in the way that all relationships do, but then a person's natural tendencies to be an abuser show up after a while. I don't think necessarily that a person is, I mean, maybe abusers really are trying to find the perfect victim, but I would not consider myself a weak-willed person, but I was in a very terrible, verbally abusive relationship for, you know, half of my teenage years. <laughs> so, you know, it happens and it's happened to most women, not because hashtag all men are beasts, but because our society doesn't hold them culpable. So I think this episode is bringing up a lot of real shit, but they're just not doing it in the right way. So anyway, again, that um, number for National Dating Abuse Helpline is one 866 Um, Okay, let's get back to the notes for a second. Um, Okay, so Buffy has to go to uh, a counselor as part of her, like, to be able to stay back in school again. She has to prove that she's a sane person or whatever. So she goes to her guidance counselor for her first meeting with her guidance or the school psychologist or whatever. And, um, he's actually pretty cool. And like, for the most part, he reads to me like a real therapist. Um, I think he does a really good job in this role. Of course, he's a red shirt, just like Pete and Debbie. Um, and I have some quotes that he said during their first therapy session that I think are kind of important. He says, he, he introduces himself as like a mostly sane person that can be a listening ear, whatever, whatever. And she's like, mostly sane? Like, do you have credentials? And he says, any person who claims, claims to be totally sane is either lying or not very bright. Um, then he starts asking Buffy questions about, um, you know, why she ran away and stuff like that. And she starts kind of opening up to him, saying that there was a boy that she loved. And then he kind of fills in the blanks, which I guess they had to do to make the scene shorter to, you know, like get to the point. But this part didn't seem, this is where like, it didn't seem realistic because he starts like putting words in her mouth and he starts intuiting things that like you wouldn't intuit after a 30 second conversation with someone. But um, for the most part, he seems like a legit therapist up until this moment, whenever, you know, Buffy kind of stops for a second, like I loved him, but then he, and then the psychologist says he changed, he got mean and she's like, yeah. And then he has this awesome little, little speech. Lots of people get lost in love. You just can't stay lost sooner or later. You have to get back to yourself. And this is where I, I don't like Buffy's response here. 
because she basically says, what if you can't? Like, she thinks at this point, she hasn't discovered Angel yet, by the way, but she thinks at this point that maybe she can't get back to herself without Angel. I mean, I get that, like, she's a 17-year-old girl and this is her first heartbreak. That makes sense. But I feel like at this point, she really has start started to put herself back together. She's dating Scott. She's come back after running away. She's putting her life back together. And I just think this is out of character for her to be so vulnerable. She's extra vulnerable in this episode in a way that I don't think is characteristic. Um, later in the fight scene, like basically Angel has to save her because she's losing against Pete. <laughs> like that's not characteristic of Buffy either, but they were just using that kind of like the book cage. It's like the book cage is unbreakable until we need it to be broken for a plot point. It's just like Buffy is unbeatable until we need her to be easily beaten so that somebody else can save her because of plot, whatever. So I don't know. I, I don't like that. Uh, but I do want to note that Buffy is still wearing that white eyeliner under her eyes that she was wearing in the last episode. So might just be a new makeup choice. They might not have been actually trying to like make her seem sad, but it just like gives her this sort of under eye glimmer that makes her look like she's on the verge of tears at all times. Um, okay. And does make her look a little bit more vulnerable and quote unquote girly. Um, my next note is X is so insensitive. Um, oh yes. What I was like, what, what was that? I mean, Xander is insensitive this entire episode, but so everybody's in the library. Buffy comes back from her therapy session and meets everybody in the library. And they're all like super grim because they're, they're all talking about how it's possible that Oz got out. There's been a killing. They don't know if Oz did it. So everybody feels awful. Um, except Xander. Um, so Buffy walks in the room. She's like, I'm afraid to ask because they all look so, you know, down. So I'm surprised she didn't say who died. You know, it's one of those things. But um, Cordelia sums it up. She just says, Oz ate someone. <laughs> and then they're like, well, we don't know that yet, but there's been a killing that looks like a werewolf killing. And Xander steps in with like one of the worst examples of Xander being an asshole. This, I mean, like, I don't want to victim blame and say that the whole thing is his fault because he fell asleep. But, you know, if Oz did get out, he could have prevented it had he been awake. So some of this is definitely his fault and he never apologized. But at this point, he starts going off on this tirade of like, well, I wouldn't call it eating someone. It's just werewolf play. You know, you can't help it if you like are batting something around and in the, in the process, they kind of get mauled and shred to bits. And I'm just like, okay, Xander, are you a secret serial killer? Like, what is this? So insensitive. Like you might call Cordelia insensitive for saying Oz ate someone, but, and I, I don't like that Oz doesn't defend himself and no one else really defends him either. Like basically Xander stops himself mid diatribe and says, I'm not helping. Am I? And Giles says, no, you know, but that's it. That's the worst reprimand he gets is that 
is that Giles sort of yells at him twice in this episode, but not even really, like, giving him the full what for that he deserves. And I don't like that Oz just sort of accepts that Xander says all this stuff to him. Like, in his presence, this is just really, like, shitty. Xander is being shitty. Don't take a drink every time I call Xander insensitive or shitty or an ass because that wouldn't be good for your health. But anyway, um, Oz gets sort of upset during this conversation and he starts to walk out and Willow stops him. And then this is like probably the only time that Oz says something kind of sexist ever in the history of his character. I mean, I'll be keeping an eye on it now to see if that's true. But this is definitely, like, the first time. And it's not super sexist. He just says, you know, that thing where you need to bail during an upsetting conversation? You know, it's kind of childish, but it's a guy thing, basically, is what he says. That's paraphrasing. But, like, he starts off be not it not being gendered, saying, you know that thing where you need to bail in the middle of a conversa- an upsetting conversation? Well, I need to do that right now. Um... It's a guy thing. And Willow says, I want you to do the guy thing, but look what time it is because it's about sunset. So he needs to lock himself in the cage so he can't like walk off right now. And um, then he gets in the cage and Willow's just sort of like looking at him with her puppy Willow eyes and like, not the time for that, Willow. Like, I understand you feel bad for him in this moment, but like he wanted to just walk away. So if you really do respect the fact that he wanted to walk away, but he can't walk away, then just like let him go in the cage and sulk, you know? But she's just like looking at him and he tells her to get away, get away from the cage. It's going to happen soon, you know? Um, So this is like the pinnacle of Oz's aggression in this episode, because this episode's all about the aggression of men. So we see it in Oz, we see it in Angel, and we see it in Pete. Um, I guess we sort of see it in Giles because he yells at Xander, which is not usual. But both of those times that he yells at Xander, they are short. Because he just... Yeah, anyway. Anyway. um, Let's see. Okay, next scene is Buffy encounters Angel in the woods. I guess she's probably patrolling at this point and she sees him and he has pants and blood on his face. So where did he get the pants, first of all? Because when he fell from the hell dimension, when he fell from hell, he was naked and wet. Now he's got pants. (laughs) Where did he get the pants? He didn't uh, care enough to put on a shirt, but he has pants. And we never find out, like, what the blood is from. Like, what did he just do? Like, I guess we can probably naturally assume that he just, like, hunted down some animal and drank its blood. Because he's acting like an animal, so he still has, like, a survival instinct of some kind. But at this point, he doesn't recognize Buffy. He's growling. He's, which I don't even think is David Boreanaz. I think they added sound effects of someone else making growling noises because it doesn't even sound like him. Um, but Buffy sees him and she like knocks him out, I guess. Um, cause I think we get another scene first before we see. Yeah. Um, so after she sees him with the blood on his mouth, um, I, th- do we see them fight at all? I think so. I think she had, I think he's kind of possibly even 
looks like he's hunting her or something. So she has to knock him out. I don't know. Something. And so the next scene we get Xander, Cordelia, and Willow. They have gone to the morgue to check the body of the kid that got killed because they want to see if it really is in line with a werewolf attack. And um, Willow has like a Scooby-Doo lunchbox filled with a bunch of supplies. She seems to have all the right tools for taking like tissue samples and hair samples from the body and stuff like that. She has everything in her little Scooby-Doo lunchbox. So that's a cute little Willow moment. Um, Xander and Cordelia. Xander can't even fucking hold a flashlight. He's just, he's just a hindrance to everything at all times, basically. Like, Willow is only asking, she's doing all the work here. All she's doing is asking him to hold the flashlight while she does all the work and he can't do it. <laughs> but um, Cordelia, I don't know why the fuck she's there because she's just making commentary. She's just another person. She's not doing anything, not even badly holding a flashlight. But, you know, it's kind of a funny little slapsticky slap scene. Um, at the end, like Willow's really keeping it together and Xander and Cordelia are both like super grossed out by the body and making lots of commentary during the, during the evidence gathering. But as soon as Willow gets done gathering evidence, she faints. So I think we're supposed to think that she's just really overcome with emotion because her boyfriend, her boyfriend might be a killer. Um, and she's very upset by that. Um, yeah. Uh, then we go back to Buffy. She has, she goes through like, they're back in the mansion where Angel used to live. And she has, I guess, dragged Angel back there and he's knocked out. And she goes to find, she starts looking through one of Drusilla's old trunks that has a bunch of her dolls still sitting on top of it. So as was pointed out in the Buffering the Vampire Slayer episode, and I think I would like to point out too, is that that's pretty shitty of Spike. Like he basically kidnapped Drusilla and took her out of town when last we saw them. And he didn't even take her trunk with all of her dolls. Like her dolls are kind of important to her. Why didn't he pack her things? Like, does he really love her? What a shithead. Spike is a shithead. <laughs> anyway, um, so Buffy, like, just knows that, like, going through Drusilla's things means that she will find some chains and manacles or whatever it's called. So she does. She chains up Angel in the mansion. He's just sort of growling and snarling and just awful. And then um, she goes to the library. It kind of transitions from Angel all chained up growling at Buffy. It just like sort of seamlessly transitions into the growling of Oz inside of the book cage. And then we get this awesome scene with Faith. She's listening to loud rock music <laughs> and um, just dancing around by the cage. So she's fully awake. She's doing her job. Buffy shows up at the library and she startles Faith and Faith accidentally punches her. So that's a really good acting scene with Sarah Michelle Gellar right there. Her acting in this episode is very good. Um, just overall. Um, I really like how she reacts to being hit by Faith. She just sort of like, you know, she keeps like holding her jaw and just sort of talking still. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's good acting. 
and let's see she says that she can't sleep or something and she's there to relieve faith so faith says okay well i can still get in a few stakings before sunrise see you later um and then buffy starts doing research so that's why she really wanted to be in the library so she sort of watches oz and also does research then the next scene is we see Giles, sort of a great subtle acting that Anthony Stewart Head always does. So he comes in and he's drinking coffee and he just sort of unlocks the cage really quick and sets the door ajar. Oz has already turned back to his human self, but he's asleep. So he just sort of quietly opens the door so that when Oz wakes up he can come out he's not trapped anymore and it's just like such a like the way that that action is carried out is something that like you you know that Oz has or that Giles has already done this particular thing for Oz like a dozen times or more at this point like it's just part of the routine when Oz is in wolf mode you know you gotta unlock the cage when you get to work in the morning you know um so that was just a sweet little moment. And then there's another sweet little moment when Giles finds Buffy, like, asleep in a chair. Which I kind of wonder, like, why is Buffy not in trouble for being asleep? Or do we... Does Giles just assume that obviously she... He just trusts her. That's I'll go with that. He trusts that she has been vigilant and she didn't fall asleep until it was safe to fall asleep. Like, until she knew that Oz had reverted to himself. But it looks like she accidentally fell asleep while reading books. So maybe she should be in trouble too for falling asleep on the watch, but I don't know. He's not upset. He just sort of, like, is spying on what she's reading. And she's reading books like stuff about demonology and secrets of Akathla, which is the demon that um, was part of the whole killing of Angel situation. Buffy wakes up. She tries to pass it off as like Faith was reading those books or something. And Giles is sort of like, um, excuse me, I'm calling you on your bullshit. But then she spouts more bullshit. Here is another opportunity we will get this. We have This has happened before and it will happen again. Buffy's character is that she will hide something from her friends. If, she's, if she hasn't fully processed it yet, she will hide something from them. That could possibly get them killed. That could endanger them. And she chooses to do that here. And that is, you know, we're going to deal with the fallout of that decision in the next couple episodes. But it's pretty shitty that she just, she decides not to tell him. She lies to him. She tells him that she had a dream that Angel is back and it was very vivid. And what would that mean? And this is where we get the speech from Giles that it would take someone of extraordinary will and character to survive something like that, meaning that he's been in a hell dimension for hundreds of years, basically. Um, to It would take someone of extraordinary will and character to survive something like that and to retain any semblance of self. Most likely he would be a monster. And that's when he, um, like I mentioned earlier, he outlines that there are two types of monsters, one that can be redeemed and more importantly, wants to be redeemed. And um, those 
that are just totally void of humanity. So there's that conversation. Um, then Willow comes in and Oz has woken up and come out of the cage and he's dressed and Willow comes in with jelly donuts and she starts like ranting about like, it's really cool watching them make them. Like I've been, a, I've been watching donuts since dawn. Like she didn't sleep well. Um, they ask her like what happened at the morgue the night before. And she kind of is reluctant to talk about it. She's being kind of avoidy, but Buffy immediately very insensitively just starts grilling her like well what was it was it was it a vampire bite was it what was it and Giles has to kind of be like Buffy back off I mean that's not what he says but you know he just does it with like a look kind of or something and um she immediately so here's the difference between Buffy and Xander. Now, Buffy will be an asshole later that she doesn't apologize for, and we'll get to that. But in this scene, she's, you know, she obviously at this point, both Willow, um, or both Oz and Angel are suspects, but they don't know that Angel's back. Um, so Buffy is reacting selfishly here because she is afraid that it's Angel that's doing these killings. And so she's just yelling at Willow, like, well, what was it? What kind of attack was it? Like, come on, out with it. And um, when Giles sort of, you know, gives her the look or whatever it is that he does, she says, I'm sorry. And she sits down. So that's the difference between Buffy and Xander is that when Buffy is called on being an insensitive asshole, she apologizes and tries to back down. They both... It's shown in several different scenes throughout the course of Buffy that both Xander and Buffy tend to have, you know, very, they're, they're kind of hot headed, both of them, but, and that's why they, and, and arguments between them, it's typically Xander and Buffy screaming at each other while Giles and Willow are sort of like trying to be peacemakers and interjecting every once in a while, but it's usually Xander and Buffy yelling at each other because they're both the hot headed ones. So, but Buffy says she's fucking sorry. God damn it. Um, let's see. My next note is Scott is a sweetie pie. There's a scene in the cafeteria where you get to see during the whole conversation, Buffy's jello wiggling. <laughs> Cause she is like, she didn't sleep well, blah, blah, blah. So she just got four different kinds of jello for her lunch. <laughs> um, and it's just a cute little interaction. This is where we're first introduced to Debbie and Pete. So it's 25 minutes. It's a little less than 25 minutes in when we first meet. Um, no, we met them earlier in the episode. Yeah, we, we did meet them earlier. But the, they're there at the table with Scott in the cafeteria in the scene as well. Um, Buffy's just, you know, being real weird and evasive. She doesn't eat any of her jello. <laughs> And Scott does this cute little thing where he's like, well, I was going to tell you that you look great today, but I'm going to up that to amazing since you didn't sleep well. And it's just, you know, a sweet boy thing. It's kind of cheesy, whatever. But Buffy is just like, you know, she just has to get out of there. Like now that she knows Angel is back, like she doesn't even know how to deal with Scott. When earlier in the episode, like one of the very first scenes, we see her and Scott together and she's sort of like linking arms with him. She, you know, she looks comfortable around him. She looks like she likes him. She kisses him. Like 
um, they look sort of at ease with each other as if they've been going out for several weeks, although it's only been a week since the last episode whenever she was about to go on her first date with him. So if there had been uh, like a week or two in between those two episodes, I would kind of believe that level of comfort between them. But I don't know, it was kind of un felt a little unearned after only being a week, but it it's cute that it looks like she's kind of comfortable around him. But at this point, this is the first time she sees him after she knows that Angel is back and she is no longer comfortable around him. She's very distracted. She wasn't even going to sit with them. I think she was just going to take her jello and go sit in a sad corner somewhere. But then Scott saw her and was like, come sit here. And like, she felt like she had to, blah, 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 blah. And then she just sort of like leaves after he says something nice to her <laughs> about looking great. And um, that's when Pete says the asshole, look at Scotty, like in the manic depressive chick which is an insensitive asshole thing to say. This is the first time we see Scott being an insensitive asshole. Um, or Pete, sorry. It's the first time we see Pete being an insensitive asshole. Um, my next note is, oh wait. So Buffy, at this moment, she just like, she realized she has to go. She has to get away. And she goes to check on Angel. Like seeing Scott triggered her wanting to go check on Angel. And he's still like growling in the corner. He doesn't know who he is or anything. And she tries to talk to him and he doesn't respond. She tries to touch him and he just, you know, growls and jumps and like snarls. And he's just being total 100% animal, still chained up at the mansion. So she leaves. Um, next scene is when we get the domestic abuse scene. And I wrote down 25 minutes in. So we don't get the storyline between Pete and Debbie until 25 minutes into the episode. And these episodes are only 42 minutes long. So it's kind of late in the episode um, that we get that what's supposed to be kind of the main storyline of the episode. But as is often the case with Buffy, like the quote unquote main storyline is still secondary to what all the characters are going through and shit like that, which I think is overall usually a good thing for the episode structure to be mostly about the characters that you know, but then there's something else going on too that is thematically similar. So that particular, this is, you know, still a pretty typical, typically structured Buffy one-off episode. Um, so that's the scene. The scene, I've pretty much talked about it before, but basically what happens is um, Pete and Debbie are making out. They go to like this little... I don't know. I don't know what it is. It looks like a boiler room or something like some like old science lab that's been forgotten. Like it looks like somebody's what, like the Dr. Frankenstein's lair or something, but it's somehow in the school and it's really dark in there. And there's like this glowing potion that is mostly empty and Pete notices it and asks Debbie what the deal is with that. And it turns out she poured it out because of how he gets when he drinks it. And you find out that he has essentially created some kind of potion and he did it for her. And it's also revealed that he doesn't even need it anymore. He starts smashing all the glasses. Like, it doesn't matter that you poured it out. I don't even need it anymore because now I become a monster just by your grating voice. And then you see him like get all veiny and turn into a monster. And that's when he hits her twice and knocks her on the ground. And then we get the whole, you know, he, 
he demonsters. He goes back to his normal Pete face, and he just sort of like um, asks her if she's okay. And he just looks so upset that she starts consoling him. And I probably said that already, but it, that particular scene was just very triggering because, as I said before, they really did a good job of showing you what that. I mean, besides besides the like him turning into a veiny monster with gnarly fingernails for some weird reason, that's a very typical way that domestic abuse looks. That entire scene, you know, even down to her comforting him after he's hit her and knocked her to the ground and she's bleeding and has a black eye. And at this point, it's been set up that she needs notes for a certain test or something, and Oz was going to offer her his notes, so they were going to meet up at the time that this whole thing happens, and you see little shots of Oz waiting for her, and at the end of this scene, she finally goes to meet him, and she's late, and um, it's almost sunset, so Oz needs to get to his cage, because this is like the last night of... Um, of his wolfiness for this month, but he's still waiting for her to give her his notes. And um, he starts to leave, but then she finally runs up and he sees that, you know, she has a black eye and he immediately just like doesn't give a shit about the notes. He just asks her, or the fact that she's late, he just asks her if she's okay. And this is where we get, I'm going to name Oz as the MVP of this episode because he's painted as being a monster and also being a man, but he is a monster and man that's trying to subvert his quote-unquote natural monster tendencies inherent in masculinity, which I don't buy that whole thing, but he is the one good guy in this episode, and his reaction to Debbie is actually the much more productive reaction. Like, if you if you have a friend that is in an abusive relationship, the way that you should probably approach it is more like how Oz is in the scene. You know, he sees that she has a black eye and she just kind of, you know, I, I, I fell, I'm such a klutz, I ran into a doorknob, whatever, you know, but the things that women say when they've been hit and Oz, you know, he just basically, he just basically reassures her that are we there yet where are we oh um i'm skipping over something so i'll, I'll come back to it um I think it's interspersed with the, you know, Pete and Debbie domestic abuse scene. We see Buffy go to her counselor because she's just come back from, you know, the mansion and she wants to talk to somebody and she thinks she can't talk to Giles or Willow, that they would judge her. And she just starts, she goes into her counselor's office and she just starts, literally, she asks for help. She says, I need help. I can't talk to Giles. I can't talk to Willow. Like they would just judge me. You might want to throw me in a loony bin after this story, but I need help. And you don't know what exactly how she's going to frame it, but she's about to like, and she's crying. And it's one of those, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar is one of the best criers in my opinion. She does this thing and I've mentioned it before and I will mention it again. She probably does this so that she can kind of dry her eyes out and start the tears flowing. But I find it just so, um, 
I don't know, so emotionally effective. She like widens her eyes like really like abnormally wide and sort of looks down like she's shutting down and then she starts crying. Um, and it just, I don't know, it's such an interesting, like I don't really see other actresses crying in that way and first what is a very emotional show um she has to cry a lot so um i'm glad that she's a good crier anyway so she starts crying and she asks for help and then she walks i mean he hasn't turned around in his chair and she sort of has told him don't turn around you know um and then she walks up to him like okay maybe turn around now uh i need to talk to you he's dead and he's been like mauled um so I think, you know, we're supposed to be putting it together now. Like we see Pete hitting Debbie. We see that, you know, her counselor is dead. And we've had a little bit of peppered conversation here and there about Debbie is also going to the same counselor. So, it, you know, it would make sense that Pete would kill this guy because he might be helping her. <laughs> um, let's see. Debbie's crying, crying. Oh, De oh, yeah. Um, the way that Debbie is crying when during the the domestic abuse scene is very triggering for me because it's sort of that <laughs> you know that sort of like I've been crying forever and I will never stop sort of like heaving sobs, you know. And I think, um, I mean, they probably picked this one-off actress that was going to be in this one episode. They probably picked her on her ability to look, you know, very defeated, very small, and be able to cry. And she does that well. Um, at one point, he's yelling at her, I'm all you've got, which is another thing that abusers do a lot. They'll tell you that no one else will love you. They'll tell you that I'm the only one that could ever love you. Um... And, you know, out of context, that seems so like, well, that's awful. No, I wouldn't believe that. But they get you to believe it. They know what they're doing. That's the problem. Um, so then in the next scene, we're back at the library. Um, Buffy, you know, is telling them about her, her counselor being dead. And they have concluded now that it's a day monster because he was killed during the day. And so that means that both Oz and Angel are off the hook. So both Willow and Buffy are very relieved. Um, so that's when they start to realize that it might be Pete. And the person that puts all that together for them is Oz because he gets to the library because he needs to go lock himself in the cage. He gets there right after seeing Debbie. Oh, wait, we got to go back to the Debbie scene. Okay. So the way that Oz reacts to Debbie is, you know, he sees that she has a black eye. He asks her if she's okay. He listens to her excuses, knowing full well that they're excuses. And then she starts to like, you know, run off after taking the notes from him. And he just, I, I don't like that he touches her because he just sort of like grabs her by the shoulder and makes her look at him. I don't like that part. That's just a little too aggressive for me, but he does stop her so that he can tell her, hey, if you need to talk, and she doesn't want to, but he just sort of, you know, makes her look at him and like, if you ever need to talk, he basically just tells her that he is a safe space if she ever wants to come to him. And that is a good example of something that you could do to help someone that's 
a victim of domestic abuse. If you are friends with them and you know that they're in this situation, blaming them doesn't help, you know, just yelling that at them about how stupid they are for putting up with this shit doesn't work. Everything that Buffy does later will get there does not help. But telling someone that they, telling someone that you will be a safe space, that they can come to you when they're ready is the right thing to do, uh, is one of the right things to do. Um, so then he comes, so Oz comes in to, uh, so that's why he gets MVP right there, right there, because he tries to subvert his natural monster tendencies and because he provides a safe space and he's one of the only people that is actually compassionate towards Debbie. He really is the only person we see compassionate towards Debbie. Um, so he gets MVP, a moment for Oz. <laughs> he comes in and he says, I may be a cold-blooded jelly donut, which is just a callback to a scene before when they were talking about a cold-blooded killer or something like that. And it's interrupted with Willow offering Oz a jelly donut. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's he comes in the room because they're talking about like, this is the work of a real monster, blah, blah, blah. At this point, they've all established that it's not Oz. And so Willow very excitedly comes up and says, it's not you, it's not you, it's a killing the day monster, 100% guaranteed. And so they're all relieved, but, you know, they still have to deal with the fact that there's a vicious killer on the loose. And, you know, obviously Buffy is secretly relieved that it was an angel as well. Um, so they start, this is when Oz, you know, he basically solves this, the case because he says because they're talking about the two people that have been killed so far, which is the counselor and um, a kid that Oz knew. And it's, it was established early in the episode that um, Oz used to be in jazz band, and that's one of the reasons why he knows Debbie. And um, so Oz is like, uh, well, the first kid knew, I mean, what's the connection here? It might be Debbie because... Debbie went to this counselor and Debbie used to be friends with the kid. Um, and then, and then Oz says, add this and stir. I just saw Debbie a minute ago sporting a nasty black eye. So they're like, Ooh, might be Pete then. So they put it all together really quickly and they divide up, you know, Giles is like, okay, well we need to get on this right now. You know, Faith, you're with me, Buffy, and Willow, you go find Debbie. Uh, me and Faith will go find Pete. And Oz is like, and I will lock myself in the cage. Where is Xander during this? I don't think Xander's in this last scene at all. I don't think he's part of... Yeah, he's not part of, like, the fight or anything. He's just not there. So this is where we get the... Buffy is an asshole and she's over identifying much as Cordelia would say and she basically yells at Debbie so Buffy and Willow both find Debbie in the bathroom trying to cover up her black eye with makeup or something and Buffy the very first thing she says to her is yeah it's tricky covering up a shiner like that you know what works don't get hit this is very much not the approach at all. She basically blames Debbie for everything. And 
you know, on the surface, this is really, really terrible. And I do remember seeing this episode. I don't know if I was already, I started watching it during season three, but I don't know if I saw this one, like literally when it came out, but I would have seen it within the year that it came out, probably during reruns or something. And I remember this seeming very natural. You know, this was a storyline. You blamed the abuser. That was, you know, kind of like earlier when Xander made the offhanded I'm not gay joke that is triggering and insensitive, immediately sounds insensitive now, but back then it seemed really normal. And this seemed really normal. This seemed like the way to deal with domestic abuse. This seemed to be like, would have been viewed as sort of a compassionate response almost like not I don't know this was kind of the way that this was dealt with was it was very victim blamey it was very like don't get in relationships with these terrible dudes you know it wasn't on the guy to stop being terrible because the guy was just being a guy you know and that's really what's playing out here but there's also another layer to it that gives Buffy a little bit more of a benefit of a doubt I mean, she's still an asshole, but her intentions aren't bad because she she goes on to say a bunch of things to Debbie that are really terrible, but she's really saying them to herself. Um, I don't like that Willow just sort of stands by and lets all of this happen in the scene. She doesn't ever, like, confront Buffy, because normally if Buffy's being this blatant of an asshole to somebody you know, Willow or Giles especially would call her on it and be like, hey, take a step back. They've both done that with her many, many times. And so it seems kind of out of character that Willow doesn't do that in the scene. But in any case, the things that Buffy says to Debbie that she's really saying to herself, I wrote them all down. She says, you want to play I Have a Secret? Normally, you want to play I Have a Secret? Fine, but people are dying here. Pete's not like other guys, is he? You have to talk to us. We can't help you until you do. There's one that she really needs to say to herself. Um, anybody who really loved you couldn't do this to you. And I think that that little moment is kind of the best of this whole bathroom scene because Buffy sort of, like, she forces Debbie to look at herself in the mirror and look at, you know, the black eye and everything. Look at yourself. Anybody who really loved you couldn't do this to you. I think that part of it might be okay. It's something that a person in that cycle may not be able to hear. So maybe it's not a good thing to say, but I think it's the most compassionate of all the terrible things that she says to Buffy or to Debbie. Um, and then she also, she's just yelling at Debbie, basically. While you two live out your grim fairy tale, two people are dead. Like, that one's really bad. Like, obviously, she's over-identifying. She's saying all the things that she needs to be saying to herself. And this is a thing that Buffy does. But in this case, it's... I really find Buffy... Buffy is, like, the opposite of the most valuable player in this episode, not only because she's not the one that defeats Pete in the end, but also because of how terrible she is to Debbie. And I, you know, I don't want to blame Buffy for Debbie dying at the end of the episode because Pete kills her. 
but Buffy was the opposite of helpful in this scene. She drove Debbie back to Pete almost because she was just so antagonistic towards her that I think Debbie was more likely to defend Pete after this conversation. And maybe if Buffy hadn't been so harsh towards her, Debbie wouldn't have gotten killed. And they really did not, they were not there for Debbie. They sort of set this whole thing up as it being her fault that she drove Pete to this behavior and she was protecting him. She wouldn't tell them where he might be. And, you know, so they were blaming her for the deaths of other people because she was protecting Pete, who was the one that really did it. And whenever she dies, it's just sort of a, well, bitch was broken anyway, kind of reaction, which is really awful. Uh, we'll get back to that. Um, we get during this conversation, this bathroom scene, we get a cut to Angel. He breaks out of his chains. Um, so he's loose now, whatever that means at this point. Um, Pete had from a distance, he saw the meeting between Debbie and Oz. He didn't hear the conversation, but he knew that they were meeting so that, you know, they could exchange notes or whatever, but he saw the moment, which I guess that's why it's in there, but the moment where Oz sort of like grabbed her shoulder that I mentioned before. And because of that, he is now going to go kill Oz. So he finds Oz in the cage in the library and he is able to, like, as I, like I mentioned before, he's able to rip the door off the cage and that's where we start getting the fight. Oz has not yet turned into the werewolf, but during the fight it happens and it's a monster versus monster fight because Pete is all veined out and Oz is a werewolf and they're fighting. Um, so at that point, everybody sort of converges again on the library. Um, Buffy has the tranquilizer gun and she's about to shoot Pete or Oz. She probably was intending to shoot both of them, obviously, um, because she wouldn't have killed Pete. But, um, Debbie is there and she pushes Buffy so that her aim is off and she hits Giles. So there's just, a, you know, a funny little moment of Giles going bloody brilliant or something like that. And, um, then passing out from the tranquilizer gun. Um, then there's this great moment between Buffy and Faith where Buffy just basically says, you get the wolf. And she throws the tranquilizer gun to her and Faith catches it. And it's just this awesome little moment of Slayer teamwork. And I love it. And then, um, Buffy and Willow go after Oz and, or no, Willow and Faith go after Oz, the werewolf, and Buffy goes by herself to take on Pete. Uh, Giles has been knocked out and Xander is nowhere to be found. In that little moment, I mean, you get to see like a tiny scene of, um, I think Pete has gone after, or Debbie has gone after Pete like a few seconds before and he sort of like jumps out a window and Debbie's waiting for him or something. Um, back in that same little, like, weird Dr. Frankenstein lair science lab, <laughs> forgotten science lab setting, whatever that is. Um, 
So you get like a tiny little moment of him like yelling at her. He's all veined out and he hits her really hard. And when Buffy catches up to them, she sees that Debbie is dead. So again, I really don't like the way that they deal with this, how they're sort of like, well, she was broken. She was a lost cause. I mean, they basically paint Debbie as a lost cause. They're not really super sad about her being dead. Um, and I mean, as many things as they force Buffy to feel responsible for, they, they don't give Debbie anything, you know, they don't give, they don't give Buffy any moments of regret for not being able to save Debbie. I mean, normally she would be shown as having more empathy than this, but she has no time for Debbie. And I think that's really, really victim blamey of this episode. Um, so let's see. Da, da, da. Okay, so now it's about to end. Um, Willow, um, at one point, Oz is sort of like on top of Faith, like attacking her. And Oz the were in werewolf form, of course. And <laughs> Willow pulls, pulls his tail and then starts running to get her to get off of to get Oz to get off of Faith and start chasing her. So that's just a cute little moment of, you know, the way that Willow fights is always very resourceful and obviously she's not a fighter. And at this point she's still not, you know, doing all the magic yet. But um, I just, that little moment was cute because she just pulls his tail. And I think there's even like a little, you know, whenever she pulls his tail and then he starts chasing her and that gives uh, Faith enough time to hit him with the tranquilizer gun and he falls down. So he's taken out. And it's now Buffy versus Pete. Um, and she's losing. He's basically beating her to a pulp and saying, you're all the same. You're all the same. You know, like bitches be crazy or whatever it is. And they're showing her as being bested by Pete, which I think is bullshit. And then angel swoops in he's still wearing the chains he brutally kills pete and then he looks at buffy and he he's not a snarling monster anymore he recognizes her he walks up to her and she's just like she's scared she's confused she is hopeful you know like all of this is playing out in her face and just the acting from sarah michelle geller in this scene is really pretty great and, you know, he's just killed Pete and he looks at her and he just, he recognizes her. He says Buffy and then he drops to his knees and he just sort of collapses and hugs her. And she, this is so perfect. Just all the emotions that go on her face. She does not hug him back. She's just sort of standing there as he's, his arms are around her waist and he is like on his knees and he's sort of hunched over and even hunched over on his knees his head goes up to like right under her chin. <laughs> That's how short Sarah Michelle Geller is. Um, she's probably like five two. Um, but it's just this really great scene where he's, you know, it's like a reconciliation, but her face is showing that even though she's sort of relieved that he's back, she's really not relieved. Like it's, 
it's like what she's wanted all this time was to just like be with her boyfriend again she's missed him so much and now he's actually back but what the fuck does that mean because now he has tortured her giles at this point he has killed her watcher's girlfriend he has tortured her watcher and he's tried to kill all of her friends and her mom and her like how do you forgive someone but this episode is really trying to tell you that it's okay to forgive angel because of his intentions because that his soul is back and he doesn't intend to hurt anyone anymore and i do love angel's overall like um redemption storyline the fact that he needs to make amends for all of his past wrongs and they do show him genuinely like spending a lifetime because he goes over on the show angel and like you know basically the whole concept with angel is that he needs to spend a lifetime maybe even several lifetimes making up for all the terrible things that he did while he was a vampire and I like that aspect of it but we're also drawing a direct parallel between domestic abuse and Buffy's relationship with Angel and if we're gonna draw that parallel you know Buffy is the victim that we're supposed we're supposed to blame here that even though she's a slayer she's still drawn to something very very dark that even at his best Angel is still a vampire and still someone that you can't actually have a moment of perfect happiness with because then he will lose his soul so it's a very problematic relationship um yeah (laughs) i am not happy that angel is back like i've liked him more than i've ever liked him on this particular rewatch of buffy but just the bullshit all the time that we have to spend on the relationship between angel and buffy that we could be spending on character development for faith or giles or willow or you know a xander redemption story arc how about that like there's so many other things that we could be spending time on but we gotta deal with some more angel buffy bullshit so here it is i do like this moment of you know him being back and him hugging her and all the emotions on her face and it's it's nice but i just wish that that moment would have been followed with buffy actually staying away from him and being like dude if you want to help out every once in a while in the fight against evil great but we're not going to be in in a relationship anymore i wish he would have set that boundary and stuck to that boundary i don't remember exactly how the whole thing plays out but i know that's not how it plays out anyway let's get to research mode oh and then there's like the the end of like the voiceover of call of the wild um part of it is this quote from the depths of the forest the call still sounded so i think we're supposed to see that like buffy and angel's love is real because an angel is actually a person of extraordinary will and character like giles said earlier (laughs) because he came out of hundreds of years of hell torture and still recognized Buffy and still loved Buffy. So because of that, he is redeemable. 
I'm not saying it's not earned. I mean, Angel definitely earns any love that he receives on this show. But I still don't think that... I think it's just ultimately really terrible for Buffy to set up relationships in her life by, you know, this this being the dynamic of the first person she ever falls in love with being a vampire that she could never have a full-time relationship with. And she's actually starting a relationship with a regular type dude that is her age that is sweet to her. And that is gonna, that's immediately ruined because of fucking Angel. Okay. I'm gonna start talking about that now. I'm gonna stop talking about it. Okay. Um, now research mode. I always have four different Buffy books that I consult. Um, basically any Buffy book that I own that has an index that I can look up the episode and see exactly what page they talk about it in. And I had some quotes from the book by Lorna Jowett called Sex and the Slayer. A gender studies primer for the Buffy fan had some quotes on this episode there's basically a whole like two or three page spread just about this episode and it was pretty interesting but I highlighted a few parts um, that I want to read to you right now violence is sexualized here and the episode makes a direct correlation between primal or bestial aggression and masculinity all the possible monsters are male so I think this is an important point it really is a story that's told over and over in Buffy that dudes are inherently violent and that they are, this violence is motivated by their passion and their love for women. And that's something that was really, pl that really played out in this episode too, because the whole thing with Pete was that he thought he wasn't masculine enough and he thought that Debbie was going to leave him or something so he created this potion to become more masculine and that's what eventually turned him into quote a bad guy because he was motivated by his love for her to become more masculine and then he became a monster and that is just a correlation that is very problematic um also this is another quote from sex and the slayer the love of a good woman may soothe the savage beast, but romantic love is used here as an excuse for violence, and the story demonstrates how women can be blamed for male aggression. This exemplifies both the female civilizing influence and the undercutting of romance in Buffy. And that's very true um, throughout the series, that like Buffy is drawn to violent men and they are seen as more more desirable because they're more masculine because they are anytime she's with like feminized dudes you know I say feminized in quotes such as Scott or even Parker even though he turns out to be an asshole in his own way or even Riley. Riley is far from being a quote-unquote feminized dude, but she basically is only able to be romantically involved with people that she sees as her equal. And so they have to be very masculine. They have to be able to, you know, rival her physically, um, which makes sense to some degree, but, but the show 
makes a parallel between that strength and masculinity. And it even turns out as the series progresses and we find out the origin of the Slayer line, that's sort of a masculinized power as well. Like this show is supposed to be all about girl power, but there's just way too many parallels, way too many gendered lines and like outdated views of gender in this show. And I think this episode really, you know, brings that home. Um, We get the quote of the episode in the very last scene because they're sort of explaining. They're explaining everything that went down to Cordelia, which they should probably be explaining it to Xander too because he wasn't there the whole last few scenes of the episode. But they're explaining to Cordelia what happened because she was like, where was I? (laughs) And Xander's like, in your special place, Cordelia. Um, I don't, they're very dismissive to Cordelia. I don't like that. Anyway, they're kind of explaining it to her that, you know, like he created that potion to become more masculine and then he became a monster. And then in the end, he didn't even need the potion anymore to be quote unquote, a bad guy. And Cordelia is just like, so he wasn't under the influence of anything, just himself. And then she says the quote of the episode, great. Now I'm going to be stuck with serious thoughts all day. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I think that's maybe the last quote. No, Buffy ends up like sitting down with Scott on a bench and he's really sad because, you know, he introduced these two characters, these two red shirts at the beginning of the episode. Like it's been set up that he's been friends with them. And he mentions in this particular scene, like he's been friends with them since before they even went to school. And Buffy is sort of indirectly the reason that both of them are dead you know like that's not revealed to scott but she just sort of sits down and like just sits with him because you know he's really sad two of his best friends are dead but he is very stoic about it he's just sort of like you know you think you know what's going on inside a person but you really don't um i don't know i just feel like you know pete is shown as being a bad guy but they don't put Debbie in a totally different category. You know, it's still sort of like, well, she just kind of, you know, she was part of that. You know, like, they really do give her culpability in the whole cycle of abuse, and I don't like that at all. Sorry, I've I've pretty much said that 16 times. Let's get back into the ratings. (laughs) My um, coveted object of the episode. I always like to pick an object that I would pluck out of the episode and keep for myself. And in this case, it is Faith's leopard pants. Also relates directly to the outfit of the episode. Faith was wearing just like a simple black sleeveless shirt, leopard pants, chunky boots, I think a studded belt and like a one of those necklaces with like multiple chains, which I actually have one like that. So I think I'm going to, I can't recreate her outfit, but I think I'm going to recreate it as closely as I can today. (laughs) Just, just because I love Fave so much. Um, so that's the outfit of the episode. The quote I already told you is that one from Cordelia. And now I'm going to be having serious thoughts all day. And the most valuable player I already told you is Oz. Now let's get to my five by five ratings. Um, first before we do that, I should tell you, we have a little bit of a break 
between the next episode. So there won't be one next Saturday, but we will come back the Saturday after that to talk about, I think it's homecoming. Yeah, homecoming. So the next one we talk about, we have an episode of Buffy to talk about every single Saturday in November. So that's pretty exciting. So no, no Halloween episode this um, this year of Buffy, unfortunately. There's no Halloween episode in season three. Um, so they'll, I won't have a podcast episode next week, but the week after that. So um, if you would like to contact me and um, argue with me about anything that I said tonight or any other night, you can email me mixtressradio at gmail, M-I-X-T-R-E-S-S-R-A-D-I-O. If you would like to um, also argue with me and or follow my Buffy Instagram, it is called Mixtress Buffy. Mixtress spelled the same way I just spelled it, which is M-I-X-T-R-E-S-S and then Buffy is how you can follow me on Instagram. I always post when I have a new episode up um, and you can message me over there if you'd like to communicate with me. If you'd like to donate monies to me, you can give me a one-time donation on PayPal paypal.me slash mixtressray, Ray spelled with an E, or you can um, become a patron. I'm going to have bonus podcast episodes up. If you're listening to this in real time in 2018, I don't have the feed up yet because I haven't figured out how to do it. But once I do, I'll start putting up extra episodes of the podcast and they'll probably just be more like reviews of movies reviews of other pop culture things. They probably will be more personal type podcast episodes. It'll probably just be like a mixed bag of stuff, but any um, patron level donations, even if it's just a dollar a month, will get access to that podcast feed. So if you want to become a patron, the way to do that is patreon.com slash mixtressray, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, M-I-X-T-R-E-S-S-R-A-E. So now that we got all that out of the way, let's do our five by five ratings for this episode. As you can probably guess at this point, I don't like this episode, so it does not get good ratings. As far as enjoyability, I gave it a two because ultimately there were enough moments in this episode that were good. So I don't want to completely put this episode in the vault. I think for future watchings of this episode, I will skip over the domestic abuse scene and watch the rest of the episode. So I'm not putting it in the vault. Uh, brief. My mom and I briefly considered it. We like made a list kind of, of like, what are moments in this episode we wouldn't want to give up for all time? Do they outweigh the moments that we didn't like? And I do think overall this episode has enough to drive forward the plot. And it has... <laughs> it... Funnily enough, has good intentions, but they aren't executed well. Um, so overall enjoyability of this episode, I gave it a two. It's not the worst. It's not like the pack or anything, but it's still not great. It's possibly the worst episode of the whole season of season three. I guess we'll, we'll figure that out later. Um, and as far as the... Obviously, they're trying to get across a message of domestic abuse. That's the parallel that they're making between metaphor and reality, like they always do. But 
again, like I've said many times, they don't do a good job of it. So I gave it a two also for the um, clarity of message rating. So this episode gets a four overall when you multiply those two scores together. So don't like it. Uh, Upon rewatches, I'm going to skip the domestic abuse scene. This is just not a great episode, but it did inspire good conversation. So even bad episodes of Buffy can still inspire good conversation. So let me know your thoughts on it. um, And I will see you guys in two weeks. Bye.